Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, if you'll have that ready. If you're visiting Christ Church today, my name is Mark. I get to be one of the ministers here. And we're glad, first of all, I love to say we're glad you worship Jesus. And we're glad you're worshiping him with us. That encourages us and we hope we can encourage you. Uh, We are in the third week of this series called The Revealed Jesus. In week one, we talked about the first five uh, words of the revelation in chapter one. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what we focused on, Shane Wood gave us a great line that particular week. He said, there is nothing we need more right now than a clearer picture of Jesus. And this entire series is designed not to answer every question you might come up with or others come up with, but actually to look at the revelation that God gave John and discover a clearer picture of Jesus and how we hold our hope in that. Last week, in a message we entitled, He Knows, and I really want to encourage you, if you weren't able to join us online last week because of the snow, or the reason maybe you're out of town or whatever, we really would encourage you to go back and pay attention to that video that can be found on our app or our webpage or our YouTube channel and go back and watch that because it really links what we need to remember as we go forward. And in that message, we talked about the fact that Jesus challenges his church. 
He's amongst his church and he challenges and he encourages and he corrects and he rewards. He knows what we're going through. He knows what we're doing and not doing and he's calling us to endure. So when we read chapters two and three in the Revelation, what we discovered was that there were some people doing well. They were holding on. They were suffering with faith. They were, they were persevering. They were enduring. And then there were some that were doing okay and some doing not well at all. And Jesus addressed all of those. Yet in each one of those letters, he brought hope. It wasn't condemnation. It was hope. It was an opportunity to step into faith and to live better and differently because of their faith. And so in the midst of all of this, we realize that Jesus was challenging these people. So when we get to chapter four, and what's unique about chapter four is, this is when the revelation really begins. Now there was a revelation of the glorified Jesus in chapter one. There was a revelation about Jesus being involved in his church in two and three. But this whole section begins when it says that God opened a door into heaven and he showed John what was going on. This is where it really starts to gain traction when God begins to talk to us about what is happening now and what will be happening in the future. And so when God wants to encourage a group of people struggling in their faith, fighting to endure, to hold on to hope when suffering, persecution, and concerns were happening, how does God encourage us? Well, you're going to see in these two chapters, God encourages us with a vision of himself. God is going to draw us together. I want you to, to hear what I'm about to say. And if you don't listen to anything else, I'd be, I'd be sad, but you would have gotten what I want you to get this morning. Jesus is the bedrock of the revelation. But the context that we see in chapters four and five is the context I want you to hold going forward. Because it all starts and ends at the throne of God. This is where the revelation begins. The throne is the centerpiece. Jesus is the bedrock. The throne is the centerpiece of all that we learn and all that we experience in going forward. So I'm going to give you homework before I even give you the lesson. What I really encourage you to do is spend some time this week reading, praying, and meditating on chapters four and five of the Revelation. It's not the most important part. It is so important, though, that you would spend worse weeks than to meditate on the vision of God and Jesus that we get in the fourth and fifth chapters of the Revelation. So let's begin. This is our God. This is what John sees. This is what God wants him to see from the very beginning. John sees a door standing open in heaven, and he's invited to come up and get a glimpse of God. Be very, very similar to some of the Old Testament prophets who were given a glimpse of the throne room. They were given a glimpse of the angelic presence around God. They were given a, a slight glimpse of his glory. It reminds us of Moses going on the Mount Sinai and meeting with God. And God showed him just a smallest, brief glimpse of his glory and it altered Moses forever. And John gets the glimpse into heaven. He sees a throne room. This is the context, the throne of God. And he sees those celebrating around God and honoring God, the praise, the adoration, the, the proclamations of who God is and what he's done. I don't think for a moment that John did not think of what was happening around Caesar's throne at the same time. His mind obviously would have gone there because Caesar was honored as God, not a God, God. And so because of this, what was taking place when John saw into the real throne, John saw something that he was seeing replicated and counterfeited in this world. And John would realize by seeing the real God, 
that the gods of this world are a joke. They're just cheap imitations with no lasting power or authority. They pale in comparison to the brilliance that we see when we see God around this throne. So let's behold God the Father. Let's behold what John does. I will not have good enough words today to depict what John saw. John's words were limited, but they give us a glimpse. They give us a taste, and hopefully they give us some inspiration. As we were taught in week one of this series, uh, when Shane was on stage with me, Shane said that we have to understand how many references from the Old Testament are found in these visions. And it didn't take me much time to realize Daniel 7, Ezekiel, Isaiah, all of these passages, what John saw around the heavenlies, the Old Testament prophets had already seen. That this is not new. That God is continually showing himself to us, giving us a vision of who he is. So when we face difficulties, we can remember this. And in fact, the word throne is used 17 times in these two chapters. The throne is the context. Jesus is the bedrock. So everything centers around God and who he is. It always has, it is today, and it always will. Everything about the revelation centers around God's work through Jesus Christ throughout the history of the world. So let's begin to just highlight some of the things you can see in these chapters about God the Father. First of all, God is surrounded by unending praise. This is one of the things that's noted right away that John points out. There are two groups surrounding the throne. There are 24 elders and there are four living creatures. We'll talk about them in a moment. I'm on a text thread with 13 other preachers. And most of the time we're just ripping each other up and laughing at each other and making each other laugh. And then every now and then we get serious and talk theology. Well, one of my buddies is preaching on heaven this weekend. So he sent it out on the thread and he said, hey, tell me what you're most looking forward to in heaven. And then he said, we couldn't use Jesus since that would be a given, right? And so people started throwing ideas. I can't wait to see a loved one I've lost or I can't wait to, to be gathered with all nations. And, and one, one of the young preachers, so naive, he wrote back and he said, endless praise. And we're all like, ugh. I mean, who wants to go for a church service that never ends? I'm a paid Christian. I say no. How about you? I mean, seriously. And so we began to, to laugh and pick on him relentlessly. Finally, he said, fine, I just candy. And we're like, that's a better answer. But in the midst of it, what we see in the revelation is endless, endless praise. But don't think endless church services. Think of the fact that there will not be a moment of our existence in the presence of God that we will not have something to praise him for. Amen. And it won't be because he holds a sword to our throat, like Caesar would. Praise me or die. God's like, know me and you'll praise me. And that's true, isn't it? And heaven is going to be ceaseless praise. And when John looks in, he sees these four living creatures. Now, they're weird. They got faces of animals and bodies of birds, and they just really don't get caught up in the details understand what John and Ezekiel would point out. They represented all of creation. They represented the birds and the land animals and the power and the meekness, and they represented all of this. And they were around the presence of God in different form than we were, creation. And they sing in verse 8, the four living creatures, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That creation is calling out to God as creator. Remember that. Creation will celebrate what God has made and he gave it to it, us, our lives, and he gave us as creation, as a gift 
to ourselves. And then the 24 elders. Now, we learned in week one, right? We don't count numbers, we weigh them. Numbers have weight to them. They're saying something. Certain numbers mean thing in scripture. And it says that the 24 elders, what might that mean? I tend to believe it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. The two covenants coming together, the 24 representing both the apostles and the, the tribes. And they're gathered around. And these are representative of those. These are the patriarchs. And they sing in verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Creation worships God as creator. The elders worship God differently. And this is what you and I as humans get the privilege of doing. There is a why to our worship. And it's not just that God created us. We get to worship God as redeemer, as king, as ruler. There's a dimension to human worship that's different than the way the rocks cry out, the mountains cry out, the birds and the flowers cry out. We get to cry out with personal stories of a relationship with God, yes, as creator, but also as redeemer and king and wise one. There's so many things we get to do. I want to encourage you this week. Don't allow your worship to only happen in this room. Allow your worship to pour out of you for who God is to you, what God has done for you, and what your hope in God is forever. This is what they're singing about. This is what they're praising him for. And then John tells us some things about God that we can see. God is the judge of every man. That may not excite some people, but it's a truth that we need to hold on to. All of the judgments that we're going to read about ultimately come from the throne of God. Remember, the context here matters. It's from this throne that God judges, and he judges with righteousness and truth. In verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. Something interesting here. If you allow me to use just a really strange way to put this, this is God clearing his throat. Now, when I was a kid, my father would clear his throat, and I could hear it in a room of thousands. Any of you have that experience? My brothers and I would be goofing around, and my dad would go, <clears throat> And all four Christian boys would snap their head like, yes, sir, we're done. Thank you. It was a warning shot. It was an awareness. My grandmother could click her fingers. She'd snap her fingers in church. And it didn't matter whose kid you were, you all stopped. I mean, they could be saying, worship God right now. And if grandma snapped her fingers, we quit worshiping. There was a threat involved. I want you to know that in the Revelation and in most other places in Scripture, when you hear about thunder and lightning and rumbling and peals, God's about to do something. It's in the revelation every time. It's also at the crucifixion of Jesus. What happened when he said it is finished and he died? What did the earth do? Lightning, thunder, earthquakes, shaking. God was about to do something. And then the temple curtain tore. You see, this is a moment where God's judgment is coming down on creation. We also learn that God tempers his judgment with mercy. Once again, the gospel is about the goodness of God and the opportunity for us to repent and return to him to him and for him. Verse three, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Does the word rainbow do anything for you? Does it remind you of a passage maybe in Genesis about a big boat and some water? What happened when the flood ended, a rainbow appeared and it was God's covenantal promise that he would no longer destroy mankind 
that he would no longer do this. And we think the rainbow is beautiful because of the colors and so forth. Do you know what Old Testament, Old Testament scholars and theologians tend to believe? That the rainbow was actually a depiction of God's bow and arrow. And instead of that judgment of God's wrath being pointed at us, the rainbow actually indicates that God has pointed his wrath back at himself. This is what Jesus did when he went to the cross. That the bow is no longer pointed at us. It's pointed away from us. And he took that wrath upon himself. It's a pretty good picture of the mercy of God. God has power over all. We learn this by spending time in this chapter. Verse 8, holy, 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 three times. Unity, together, complete. Holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is undeniable. And he is the Lord God Almighty. John's favorite expression of God in the Revelation. The Lord God all-powerful. You think the people of John's day needed to know that their God was able? Not only willing, but able? Able to protect, able to defend, able to, to care for? God is infinitely timeless. This may not mean anything to us in our world today, but I tend to believe it meant a whole lot more to John and should mean as much to us. Verse 8, the one who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, the one who lives forever and ever. Remember, what was the great oppressive force against the Christians during the time of this revelation? Rome. And you know what they saw? Caesars stood up and pronounced themselves as grand rulers and gods. Yet they died and they died and they died and they died. And John says, the one we worship is not someone who's going to die and leave us. The one we worship, he lives forever. He always has. He always will. He doesn't get old. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't forget. God is infinitely glorious. Verse 11, this expression is used so often in the Revelation, worthy to receive glory and honor and power. There's only two persons identified as worthy in all of the Revelation, God and Jesus. There are a bunch of people that the world will find worthy. There are angels and elders and martyrs and many, many representative groups that are worthy of being respected, but they're not worthy. We'll see that play out in just a moment. God is the sustainer of all things. Verse 11, he created all things and by his will they exist and came into being. John hears this song sung and he realizes what they're saying that God has no outside force on him. God is not compelled by evil to do things. He exists in and of himself. His will is in and of himself. This was his plan, his idea. There's no outside source assisting or shaping any part of his creation. Nothing in all of creation exists outside of God's will, including you and me. You think that matters to a people who wonder who's going to provide and care for them? when the hammer comes down and they have to pay the price of persecution. And God is sovereign over all things. This vision of God that we see in chapter four actually extends itself into chapter five. It's found right there in verse one. Now remember, the chapters and verses were our ideas to help us find things in the Bible quicker. When John was writing this, I think verse one flows backwards. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now when they would send, a king would send a letter, an edict, a command out that would be written down for him and he would seal it with, 
wax. That wax would be warmed up and it would seal on the edge of it and then his signet ring would press into it, putting the mark of the sender. And remember, some of you are gonna be fascinated with this, being marked by God is gonna matter for us in a few chapters. Being marked by the world is gonna matter in a few chapters. So you have this marking and it's marked with seven seals. We weigh the number seven, seven days of creation, completeness. Seven's a big, big number in the scripture. It means God's perfect will, God's perfect plan, complete. Now I learned something the first year I was married. I don't know if you, some of you young husbands or newlyweds, listen carefully. No one taught me this. I didn't know it was coming, but I learned something. I learned I am never, ever, ever to open a letter addressed to Heather Christian. Never. I, never. That's the first rule. Second rule I learned is Heather Christian is not obligated to that same rule in any fashion. <laughs> That's what I learned. And I learned don't cause fights you can't win. So... That's the way it goes. Mail to her. In fact, I think if my wife had her way, I would never be allowed to go to the mailbox because she wants to discover the goodies and she gets mad when I take some ad from some place we've never shopped at and throw it in the trash. She's like, I didn't read that and I've learned. <laughs> Mail address to Heather and Mark Christian is hers. Address to Heather Christian, hers. Address to Mark Christian, ours, right? So God sits on the throne and he has his battle plan for all of history in his hand. And everybody wants to know what it says. And it's sealed with seven seals, which means to who it is addressed is perfect. Which means everybody else in the room is not going to open that scroll. It says not for you, for somebody worthy. Our sovereign God holds the destiny of the world in his hands and without someone to open that, we would never know what that was. We wouldn't understand it. Remember back in the 70s, we used to sing a song, at least at church camp we did. He's got the whole world in his hands. Do you see where this comes from? He's got everything right there in the palm of his hand. And he's, it's not too heavy for him. It's not outside of his control. He's got this all figured out. I want you to behold God the Father, holding the history of the world in his hands. It's not been taken from him. It's not being controlled by outside forces. There are things happening in this world that God is allowing, and I don't always understand why, but I do understand that he is not being suppressed. He is not being held back. He holds the whole world in his hands. Spend some time this week beholding that God. You spent worse weeks. Let's behold God the Son. We can see it right here in verses 2, 3, and 4. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Can you imagine? Someone cries out and says, God's plan for history. What is God going to do to help us to endure, to hold on? Who's going to open it? And everybody hangs their head. The 24 elders, legends, accomplished, good, faithful, hang their heads. We can't. The creatures, powerful, mighty, we can't. Angels, not us. In the midst of this, verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. John begins to cry. What is, what's going to happen? How do we hold on? How is God going to redeem this? How is God going to fix this? 
Nobody can open it. Who's able? Who's worthy? From the beginning of time, God had made a choice in his creation that he was going to, through obedient humankind, work his will through creation. He was going to work it in relation with us. That he created man over all creation and put man over all creation to work with him. You'll also know when you read the Revelation that it also tells us that we are going to reign with him. So this is not a new concept. The faithful, relational humankind with God was his plan. And then we messed it up. And we think, well, then God had to go to plan two. No, God from the very beginning had worked this together that through one nation, one group of people, one family of faith, he was going to bring deliverance to this broken world. So he called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he called Abraham and we have been, oh, it's been scary. If you read your Bible, you're gonna see moments that we were one or two people from the chain breaking. Yet people remain faithful to God and he's delivered his people historically through people like you and I who choose against culture to be faithful and endure for him, to be a part of the family of faith that continues on when others drop out. Not because we're better, because we have a vision of God that compels us. And then you have this moment. John begins to weep, verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. The worthy one is found. And when, when John sees him, Jesus is a conquering lion, powerful image, king of the beasts, ruler of the animal domain, the power, the majesty, the fear. But this was prophesied. And he called him the lion of Judah. You could go back to several passages. Genesis 49, the lion of the tribe of Judah, to whom shall be the obedience of the people? Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. The root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the people. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The Messiah has come. The one John talked about. The one John would write about in his gospel. This messianic figure that he was presenting. The seven I am statements. John was aware of this. He came as a conquering lion, and Jesus came. He did not fall prey to sin. He was not possessed by sin. He was not enslaved to Satan. He crushed the ancient snake. The lion won. But how did he conquer? Then John's vision changes and he sees Jesus as a slaughtered lamb. And the imagery here is, is more than powerful. You and I can dismiss it because we're aware that Jesus is at one time a lion, he's another time, he's a lamb, but spend some time beholding this. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. How does a slain lamb stand? Because he's resurrected. Amen. With seven horns and seven eyes. That's weird. Horns, power. Seven, complete power. Eyes, knowledge. Seven, eyes, all knowledge. Hmm, sounds like God. And the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth full of the Holy Spirit, led by God, working with and for God. John hears the roar and he sees a lamb that roars. John would remember because he wrote this in his gospel. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized, what did he call him? Behold the lamb of God. This is not surprising. We want a lion though, don't we? We get a slain lamb. It echoes the language from Exodus 12 when they were leaving Egypt. 
And on the night they were leaving, they were told to sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood on the top of the doorpost. And those houses that were covered in the blood would be saved. And so we learn, once again, this is not new imagery. This is God consummating the kingdom he has promised from the very beginning. And this lion conquers by being sacrificed as a lamb, marred, despised, rejected, poor, afflicted, so that all who hide under his blood are safe. All will be taken from their slavery into the wilderness to enter into the promised land. And there he stands, resurrected from his death, resurrected from his sacrifice. He bears the scars of death so that he has sovereignty over death. And verse 7 won't appear on the screen, but look at it with me. Chapter 5, verse 7. The scroll was taken from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. God holds out his throne, his plan for all the world, his plan for the redemption, reconciliation, and consummation of his kingdom. He holds it out. Nobody can look at it. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can take it until God hands it to Jesus. Do you want to know where Jesus' authority is? It's because God does not give his authority to anyone else. He gives it only to himself. And when Jesus takes the scroll, it's telling us his authority. The world asks you and I all the time, do we really believe that the only way anybody can find salvation is in Jesus? There's no other path. Isn't that closed-minded? Isn't that limiting? Isn't that unfair? I want you to see this picture and realize we see what we need to know. Jesus is God's only plan to save the world. He's the only one worthy. Everything else will be found unworthy. And the angels begin to sing a new song, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. John knew this already, I'm certain. But it was confirmed in his soul when he heard the song being sung. Jesus came to the Jewish nation. He came to the people of Israel, and they rejected him. And he didn't turn his back on them. But he did what he was going to do all along. He opened it up to the rest. And John stood there and realized Jesus was the savior of all the world, not just one special family. We learn that Jesus' worth is undisputed. Jesus did not slip out of heaven as the lion of Judah to become the slain lamb. He didn't do it like a knight on a secret quest slipping out the side doors when nobody noticed. We know that the heavens knew what was happening because when Jesus appeared. What did the angels sing that night? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those who God's favor rests. In other words, the angels were pronouncing this to the world. We're just slow to the take. Christ has the keys to all human history. He's got the whole world in his hands. And this song that's sung, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, and glory in verse 12, the song that's being sung, I learned this this week and it startled me. These are the same things that Caesar commanded people would sing over him. And Jesus has redeemed that song because now you and I know who really is worthy. There is no earthly ruler worthy of our loyalty. There is no earthly rule, uh, ruler worthy of our adoration and worship. We worship the only one who has real power, not temporary man. Verses 13 and 14. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. That's a church word, right? You know what the word amen means? Truth. So be it. Or in our vernacular, that's right. I want you to know that when they called out that Jesus is it, he is God's plan for history, he is faithful, he will get it done, he is all powerful, almighty, He's all, he has all wisdom, all strength, he is everything, and the heavenly, the heaven living creatures that surround God day and night, they went, yep, never be in doubt. The heavens know it's true, it's time the church knows it's true, and we live that. And the elders fell down in worship. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time to, to beat this up, but I'm going to try anyway. I have noticed when I've read the Revelation a few times, there's a lot of falling down that takes place. We need to get used to that. In fact, what's funny is they're wearing crowns, which means their earthly lives transfer over into their, their eternal lives. That God honors the things we do for him. He doesn't take them like, well, you should have done those. He loves to honor those who love to honor him. And so it says that the elders have crowns and it even talks about, I think there's four or five different crowns found in the Bible that we're told that we will receive from God for our faithfulness, which is awesome that God would pay us and reward us for doing what we should have done anyway. But what's fun is when you get to the revelation, when we see who God is and we see who Jesus is, we all take our crowns up, slide them forward. Like one of my favorite memories of all time was when Heather wasn't in the car with me, Alex loved to yell shotgun and run to the front seat, right? He had no siblings to fight with, but that was cool for him. So he'd be like, shotgun and go to the front seat. My dad and my son and I were going someplace one time and Alex ran to the front seat and he saw my dad coming out of the house and he opened the door and he said, grandpa, you sit here, I'll sit in the back. Deference. He knew the man was in the house and he took his spot willingly to honor his grandfather. And I thought, that's a good kid. You know what we're going to do when we get in the presence of God? We're going to go, dude, you're driving. I'm just happy to be in the vehicle. You get the seat of honor. I don't wear a crown in the presence of God. He wears the crown. You with me, church? And the elders, these accomplished people, fall in the presence of God. And they love doing it, and so will we. Behold God the Father. Behold God the Son. So what's the point this week? Just a few and I'll be done. When we understand the glory of the throne of God, who sits on it, and who brought that throne to earth, the glory of God compels us to be nowhere else but at his feet. This is what we do best, to worship and bow ourselves in the presence of our king. And the glory of God empowers us to escape temptation. This could be a separate sermon. I'm going to give it to you in 20 seconds. Here you go. How does the glory of God empower us to escape temptation? Well, first of all, the idols that we worship and all sin is idolatry. It is all idolatry because we're trusting in something besides God to make us happy, to provide for us, to care for us. We're, we're replacing God with things. And when we understand the glory of God and the glory of the Son, there is no idol that we would even entertain. They're all cheap counterfeits. And we would refuse to compromise in light of knowing who Jesus is, the Lamb, worthy, the Holy One. And the glory of God enables us to endure tribulation. I want to end today with good news. Here's what it is. 
Our God is in control. He has been, he is, and he always will be. The one who was and is and is to come. He's in control when you and I are not, he is. When we don't know what's coming, he does. When we can't control the events around us, he can, he will, he is. We can rest in him when we can rest in nothing else. Our enemy has been conquered. Our enemy knows this. It's time the church did. You're not forced to do anything. Satan's not making us do anything. Why are we worshiping him? Why are we listening to him? Why are we trusting him? We don't have to. He's defeated. He knows it. He's on a last-ditch effort to hurt as many of us as he can to harm God. And so many people talk about the great battle at the end of the days. Let me tell you what the battle is in the revelation of John about Jesus. Jesus shows up, Satan shuts up, it's over. There's no battle. He's conquered, he knows it, he's a fraud. Don't buy the lies. And one day our suffering will conclude because the lion who became our lamb covers us in his blood and he will provide every promise. He was, he is, he is to come. Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.